so many great and rich stories come to mind when we think of 1 Samuel. And this is a book which it continues on and an unbroken narrative. The Old Testament history that's meant to be read in line from the book of Joshua all the way through to the book of 2 Kings. So we're jumping into a story kind of in the middle. <laughs> and we're going to have to do some work this morning to figure out how we got to where we are in 1 Samuel. But it's a, a narrative collection known as the Deuteronomic History. That's probably a word we've all heard before. But it's basically a narrative, a story um, that's coming after the book of Deuteronomy, which is the law right, of Israel as they enter into the land. And this narrative here from Joshua and on, it's a chronicle, a story of how well Israel keeps that covenant in the land. Because as Deuteronomy says, if you keep the law, you'll be blessed. And if you break the law, you'll be cursed. And so this is um, a record of Israel's covenant faithfulness or lack thereof played out over the course of their history. And finally, 1 Samuel is a book um, that contains what scholar Walter Brueggemann calls an unlaundered history. It's a history, and at that, it is an unlaundered history. It's a history of how the holy and wise God worked in the midst of and through a very messy and a very sinful human history, full of evil, full of unfaithfulness, full of failure and folly on the part of Israel, on the part of man, but all the while working through that history to preserve a people for himself and to accomplish his, his purposes. And so, this is what's happening in 1 Samuel as we step up to it. And really, <laughs> to make it even simpler, it's a book that above all else explains the historical development of how Israel went from a you know, very loosely knit together and decentralized confederation of 12 tribes, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. How they went from that to a unified and uh, consolidated, centralized monarchy having a government that's now ran by a king. It's a story that explains how Israel went from those tribes to a kingdom and what led up to that development. And so at heart, 1 Samuel is a book about kingship, how Israel came to have a king and what it meant that they asked for and received a king. It's a story of a bad king, a good king, and the true king. And we'll unpack those things today and as we go on throughout our time in this book. Um, and this morning, if you think, well, that doesn't apply to me because I live in America and uh, we don't have a king here. We haven't had a king in quite some time, Jeff. Things have changed now. I would challenge you to, to think again on that point <laughs> because like it or not, recognize it or not now, governmentally speaking, we all serve a king. In one way or another, we are all under a ruler of one sort. And so 1 Samuel speaks to us at heart, because at heart, we all belong to one kingdom or the next, and we all serve one king or the other. And we'll unpack that again more as we go on this morning and in the series. But 1 Samuel isn't just a book of history about the past. It's a book for us today, because we today live under a king and in a kingdom. But... This is a bit of a spoiler alert now. <laughs> As you probably already know, in the story of Israel's first king, his name is King Saul, um, the story of Israel's reception of that king is also, and simultaneously, a story of their rejection 
of the true king, right? The people say, give us a king. Give us a king like the nations, and they receive Saul, and simultaneously God says what? That in asking for Saul and requesting the king that they had requested, they've come to reject God. Now, this is the central problem of 1 Samuel, and what we're going to do this morning is set up how Israel got there, how Israel, the chosen people of God, the holy nation, Exodus 19.6, the kingdom of priests that he redeemed from captivity, how that people came from Exodus 19.6 to requesting a king like the nations. How does God's holy nation want a king like the nations? <laughs> how does God's holy nation begin to live and act like the nations? This is the central problem of 1 Samuel, and this is really the fountainhead from which all their kingly problems <laughs> begin to flow downstream of. And so this morning, as we begin to dive into 1 Samuel, we're actually not going to dive right into 1 Samuel. We're going to dive into the book of Judges to get the backdrop and the background, to see the root and the heart of this problem that Israel has, so that we can explain and understand how they got to where they got, and simultaneously see how we too can fall into the same sort of snare. And so with that, would you take your Bibles and turn to Judges, chapter 21, verse 25? We're going to read just one verse to get started off this morning. That's Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. That is, Jueces, capítulo 21, versículo 25. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, know this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. We're all committing to learn how to read the Bible in 1 Samuel for the next 9 to 10 months. And even if you don't have a Bible with you, you can go onto your phone's browser, to your Bible app of choice, and just look up the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Uh, actually, not 1 Samuel, <laughs> Judges. In the ESV translation, we'll be reading from the ESV this morning. And so with that, let's look at Judges 21, verse 25 and see the words that establish the root of Israel's problem, which lead to the God-rejecting, holy nation turned on its head sort of collapse that we see as we go through the book of 1 Samuel. And now these words were written in reference to um, the period of the judges in Israel, probably written between 1050 and 1100 B.C., and the book of 1 Samuel picks up in around 1050 B.C. with the birth of that prophet. So this is really kind of, you know, uh, the, the trailer, as it were, <laughs> looking into what's going to develop in 1 Samuel. This is the backdrop. This is where we begin. This is the context, the frame, if you will. So look with me without any further ado at Judges 21-25, and then we'll pray for God to meet us this morning. The author of Judges writes, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray and ask God to meet us this morning. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word, which speaks, Lord, to us, that we have the confidence as we come to it that not one word written therein is not for us, is not meant to take our hearts and our minds and turn them more closely and more fully to you. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you would send your spirit, that we would be helped to understand and to apply your word, that I would be helped to preach it with boldness and with clarity, and that, Lord, you um, would, uh, Lord, turn our eyes <laughs> from what is right 
as we consider it, to what is right as you declare it. Lord, help us and help this time to be something that is right and good and pleasing in your sight. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So let's ask the question, what's so wrong with everyone doing what is right in their own, in their own eyes? What could go wrong with everyone doing what is right as far as they can see it and consider it? This morning, we'll tether out two implications that flow from this fountainhead, that dig down into this root um, and lead us to the place in 1 Samuel where Israel comes to reject God the king. This verse here explains how Israel got to where they got. It explains how any of us can come to live out of reference and out of alignment and out of worship to God, our king. And so Israel and everyone therein did what was right in their, own, in their own eyes. This leads us to the first of two problems, which will be serving as our two points in our outline this morning as we travel through uh, this introductory sermon here. But Israel, the beginning of 1 Samuel, the backdrop is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and this leads to the rejection of the king because, in other words, if you do what is right in your own eyes, guess what you're doing? <laughs> you're living like the king. And this is the first point. This is the first problem. Israel ends up rejecting God because, number one, they themselves lived like kings. The people of Israel, they lived like kings. They lived according to their own rule and their own way. And that set them apart and set them away from God's rules and God's way. And so we see that the book of 1 Samuel, according to the text here, it begins without a sole and authoritative human king in Israel. Instead, everyone, all the people are living like they are the king. And so now imagine what it would be like for you to be king for a day. Think about that in your mind. Let your mind kind of explore that idea. To be king for a day, what does that mean? You can do whatever you want. You're the king. Kings do as they please. They are the law. They are the rules. And so consider the fact that if you were to be living like king uh, for a day, and now, keeping that hypothetical in your mind, imagine at the same time that everybody else was doing the same thing. <laughs> Everyone is living like their king for a day, according to their own rules, according to their own way. And if we keep tethering out that hypothetical a little bit further, if I'm living like I'm the king, and you're living like you're the king, eventually, maybe, our kingdoms might clash. <laughs> if we're all living our own way, according to our own rules, doing what we selfishly want and desire, that could lead to some challenges. That could lead to some problems. And what we see in the case of Israel is that this leads to chaos. The book of Judges in the, the pre-history prior to 1 Samuel is a series of events that are further and further descending into a place of chaos. Read the book of Judges this week, even just chapters 17 through 21, if you have the stomach for it. It's gritty. It's gory. It's unlaundered history that explains Israel's descent away from God because they were all doing what was right in their own eyes. And so the question, what could be so wrong with us living according to what's right in our own eyes? 
Well, the Bible supplies an answer. Listen to this, Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. What could go wrong? The author of the Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. (laughs) So what could go wrong? To live according to what is right in our own eyes? The Proverbs say that the end is death. Romans 6 says similarly, right? The wages of our sin is death. We can do things our own way, but the result of living our own way is death. Just like way back when in the garden, we think of Adam, and we think of the commands that God gave to him so clearly. We think that, Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for this one, for in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Yet we know the story. Adam and Eve, they disobey. They think perhaps that maybe God, maybe he's not good, you know? Maybe he's withholding something from us, and we might know better than him ourselves what's best. Or maybe, you know, God, maybe maybe he's good, but maybe he's not just. Maybe he said that in that day you'll surely die, but I don't really believe he'll follow through on that. (laughs) Maybe he is the king, maybe he calls the shots, but maybe he won't follow through on, on, on the punishment and on the curse. And whichever way you look and whichever way you turn, in that day, Adam and Eve failed to do what is right in God's eyes. They failed to take him at his word, and instead, they did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And the end was death. The end was separation from God and exile from the garden. And so too we see in the history of Israel that even as they are led out of slavery, redeemed from captivity in Egypt, set free from sin and death, and God gives them his covenant, his agreement with them that I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, follow my laws. Obey my statutes. Do these things, the law says to Israel, and you will be blessed. You will find a life in a land that is good and prosperous and full of my presence with you. But break this law. Disregard my statutes and you'll be cursed. You'll be cut off. It's a simple and clear proposition, just like to Adam and Eve, just like to Israel coming out of Egypt, just like as they got into the land, and just like it lands on our ears now. There are two ways we can go, and the way of living like we're the king is a way that leads to death, but there's a way that God has held out for us, and that's a way that leads to life, but the problem Israel found themselves facing was that at the time of the book of the Judges coming to a close, Everyone thought that they knew better than God, and everyone did as they pleased. And they fell short of God's standard of holiness, and they descended further and further into chaos, into destruction. And apart from the grace of God, our hearts now are tempted just like their hearts were then. We too, day in and day out, are tempted to live like kings. And let's consider a few things as we try to take that situation and apply it to our context here. Um, We're tempted to live like kings because, let's face it, our culture today, just like theirs might have been then, back in the book of Judges, is all about doing what is right in our own eyes. Is it not? It's all about living like a king. The way that society around us operates now, it's all about living like a king. And, you know, at heart, if anyone were to say, uh, no, I don't believe that. There's actually no king you know, in the world. There's no big meta-narrative. There's no transcendent God. There's no one who should really tell me what to do. Well, guess what that person's doing? <laughs> They're just making themselves the king. So any way you slice it, someone's got to be the king. And if you deny some 
you know, law and some God and some sort of big story that you fit into, you're just making yourself your own sort of king with your own sort of kingdom. But really think about it. The way that we talk today, on social media, you'll see men and women calling each other and themselves king or queen. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't really understand why. I'm thinking maybe some sort of empowerment, some sort of self-esteem, you know, sort of thing. But we're all kings and queens. We can think of the standards that we set and that are socially acceptable and applauded in our society. Um, thinking about you know, Simone Biles and the recent Olympic events, and really not making a comment on that. <laughs> it's really, at the end of the day, not a big deal to me. But it's interesting to look at her decision-making and to see how folks have responded to it. Uh, Simone Biles, the U.S. Olympic champ, withdrew from her gymnastics competitions um, to, quote, um, focus on her mental health. And this created quite a stir and quite a shock and, you know, uh, was a big letdown to some, but also a big thing to celebrate um, for others. And even as some have been critical of her decision, um, others, including her teammates, have celebrated this decision for her to quit um, on the Olympic pursuit. Uh, her team said, we wholeheartedly support Simone's decision and applaud her bravery in prioritizing her well-being. Her courage shows, yet again, why she is a role model for so many. And so the point being that whatever you think about her particular decision, not really important here. The point being is that she made a decision based upon her own self-assessment, thinking that this is what's right for me, and in return, she was applauded and celebrated for doing what was right in her own eyes. And going further from that, this can go so many different ways in our culture today, being celebrated and applauded for the bravery that it takes to do what is right in our own eyes, to choose and define your own gender identity or expression. That's applauded. That's brave. That is wonderful, right? That is good. That's you saying, I am able to define myself, and the society around will applaud that. Um, considering things even as evil as abortion, things like my body, my choice, these are things that have come um, to us um, with the virtue, almost, of doing what is right in your own eyes. No one should be able to tell you not to define yourself with this way, not to do this uh, sort of act with planning your family. Your body, your choice, you and yourself, your gender expression, whatever it may be that you choose is good. Do what is right in your own eyes is what our society tells us. That's prevalent all around us. And I could go on, and you guys can probably think of more examples to this end, but what about the church? Because the world is one thing, right? The world is always going to be the world. The world's always going to do what the world does. But what about us? What are our temptations like even as believers to do what is right in our own eyes and to live like kings? And so let's pull this into our context and get a little bit more uh, particular with it. Because we can say, I don't do that. I worship Jesus. <laughs> but let's really look at our hearts. How can we, in our deepest heart of hearts, live like we're our own kings? Well, really at heart, deepest um, at heart, we can lose sight of our role as subjects in God's kingdom, redeemed to live a life of service to our king, first and foremost, and pursue a course of life that looks less like personal kingdom building and more like kingdom advancing for the sake of Christ. We can miss that distinction. And even in the Christian life, we could be about and pursuing our own kingdoms, our own gain, our own um, selfish ambitions, even cloaked with and dressed up in, uh, you know, churchy stuff, 
and Christian uh, lifestyles, but we can really be more about us than about the glory of God and the good of others. We can live like kings and see God as primarily existing for us and not us for him. We can consider God as the one who's there to give us what we want when we want it, to bail us out when we really need him, (laughs) and to be the cheerleader of and the co-signer for um, all of our hopes and dreams. We can approach God in the gospel, in the church, as a place that's about us, where we come to receive what we want, not to serve a God (laughs) who is the object of our worship. We are instead just the subjects of his kingship. We can be tempted <laughs> as Christians to, you know, say things like, well, you know, I can be a Christian, but I don't really need to prioritize or commit to the church, right? I don't really need to read the scriptures every day. I just don't have time to serve in the church. I can be living this sort of lifestyle, um, but have other interests and other commitments that it's okay if they compete for my time. You know, I can be obedient enough but I can't be totally obedient. I can't be totally focused on prioritizing God and his word and his kingdom. You know, I, 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 I do it well enough, but you know, if I don't come to church all the time, it's not a big deal, right? If I don't read my Bible that much, you know, I can still be a Christian, right? If I don't serve, God will still love me. And again, those things may be true, but that's the wrong way to look at it. We've been privileged to enter into relationship with this king. How can we not but serve him and read his words and be a part of his kingdom to the fullest extent that we're able. We could think of the fact that we acknowledge as Christians that, yeah, God rules over my life. Totally, I get that. I'm his. I've been bought with a price. But maybe he's not so concerned with some certain things I do, right? Maybe in some particular context of life. Maybe like what I say on social media. (laughs) That's kind of a gray area, and he kind of lets me exist as I'd like to over there. I can do what I want and say what I want, and it's kind of off God's record keeping. (laughs) It doesn't really matter there so much if I honor Christ to the fullness of my ability. We could, in other ways, in thinking of particular sins that we struggle with, think, well, you know, yeah, God's the king, but he hasn't explicitly said not to do this thing. So maybe, I know that this is the sin over here, so I'll kind of walk up to it, walk all around it, and kind of do everything but give in to that sin. I'm, I'm not going to be disobedient, but I'm just going to kind of flirt around the edges of my sin. Um, and perhaps, and probably, in so doing, deceiving our own hearts to think that we're not falling into that very sin that God has said not to pursue. But we can think, well, I know well enough and best enough to get close to this thing, but I won't fall in. <laughs> That's living the way that is right in our own eyes. We could go our own way in pursuing relationships with someone who is not a believer, or even someone at that who's not a very mature believer, pursuing um, a relationship of being unequally yoked uh, to someone, even though God wouldn't advise it because we just want to do what we want to do. And I could go on. We could spend foolishly or, or selfishly. We could again and again prioritize our own kingdoms more so than God's, even as believers. And so think this morning as we're hearing these words and as we're preparing to go into this sermon series, what are the ways in which you still as a believer do what is right in your own eyes and prioritize your own kingdom? Um, Because the point that Judges in 1 Samuel is making is that um, on a societal scale and on a personal scale, when we live like kings and do whatever is right in our own eyes, the end result is death. Living like kings for Israel then and for us now will not work out. 
We are not good kings. We will not keep our kingdoms up and running well. They will collapse. And the people of Israel, they realize the same fact. And as we get into the book of 1 Samuel, we'll see the first seven chapters demonstrating this fact. That as them doing what is right in their own eyes plays out, they begin to realize that as Judges begins without a king, the people of Israel come to say, you know, I think we need a king. Things are getting out of hand here. Someone needs to do something about this. Things are falling apart. We need help. And so there's an evolution, there's a development of the people of Israel doing things their own way and reaping the reward and then saying, okay, I think it's time we got some help here. But the problem is that now downstream of them doing what is right in their own eyes, do we think they'll make the right sort of choice as to who will be a good and fitting king for them? And the answer is no. They have the right desire. We need a king. But they express it wrongly. We want a king like the nations. And this leads us to our second point, our second problem that results of us living according to what is right in our own eyes. That the people of Israel then and uh, we now can be tempted to look to lesser kings. Israel, back in 1 Samuel, looked to lesser kings. And so this is where the rubber meets the road in the book. This is what gets us caught up to the context of the book. We have the backdrop that there is no king. Everyone's doing as they please. But after things decay and descend into deeper and deeper chaos in the land, Israel finally says, enough. We need someone to lead us. And so this is, again, the right uh, observation. They recognize and humbly say, we can't do this on our own. Our lives have become unmanageable to us. We're bad kings, so now we need a king. Um, but when we arrive at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and as they make the request of Samuel, the, the last judge um, in the line of the judges, the prophet in the land at that time, as they make the request of him, in recognizing they need a king, they request the wrong sort of king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, they say to Samuel, we want a king to judge us like all the nations. And this is what I quoted at the beginning. But they come to this place where they recognize their need, um, and then the king they want is a king like the nations. God's people, God's holy nation, they want to be like the nations. <laughs> Can we see the problem here? Can we see the disconnect into what they want, into who they're supposed to be. Um, and this request, it leads to God concluding a couple verses later in verse 8 of chapter 8. He says this, they've rejected me from being king over them. And this is now not because God never intended to appoint a human king um, in Israel, but because of the kind of human king they wanted to appoint. And we'll get into this more as we go through 1 Samuel. We don't have time to dive into these scriptures today. But if you're interested in that, write these couple of verses down for uh, the development of uh, kings in God's plan. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, and Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Just a couple of scriptures that demonstrate that kingship, it was God's idea. He intended to bring forth a king in the land, but the king that he wanted was a different sort of king altogether than the king that Israel thought they needed. They wanted a king like the nations. And what that really means and comes to be boiled down to is that they wanted a king 
who they could look out and see all their neighboring kingdoms around them. And at this time, Israel has just been in a perpetual state of war. And they see all these kings in the nations, and they are warriors. They're getting after stuff. They're attacking Israel. They're oppressing Israel. They're winning battles. They're strong leaders. And they say, man, we want a king like that. We want someone who's going to come in and get it done. You know, their character, eh, (laughs) not as important, right? How much they follow God's will, not quite as important. We really want someone who's going to have a strong hand. They're going to get it done. They're going to consolidate power, and they're going to rule, you know, with an iron fist. We're going to be behind them. People aren't going to mess with us if we have that kind of king. That's the kind of king that's going to bring us peace and prosperity. Um, But is that the kind of king that's going to follow God's law? (laughs) Is that the kind of king that's going to exhibit godly character? And that's the problem. These aren't the things that are on Israel's mind as they're requesting a king from Samuel. They want a king like all the nations, not a king who's after God's own heart. And so in this way, they reject God because they reject his standards. They reject a ruler who would emulate God and mediate his own kingship uh, to them. They want a king like the nations because they've become like the nations. And again, go read Judges for this. Uh, We don't have time to dive all into it. But Judges chapters 17 through 21 uh, really lays it on thick and tells the, the story of Israel as they stop looking like a holy nation and a kingdom of priests and start looking like everybody else. To give you a few highlights of that, uh, Israel, as they're decaying and devolving, begin to practice uh, idolatry, and they begin to worship God however they want. At one point in the book of Judges, a guy ordains his own priest, builds his own tabernacle in his own house, (laughs) and has a rival sanctuary to the main sanctuary there. He says, I'll worship however I want. We can do church in my house. I'll ordain a priest, and we'll have everything be well and good here, and I'll make all the idols I want. This is way convenient for me. This is really easy. I don't need to go to church. I'll just do it myself. (laughs) Things get so bad that another tribe in Israel says, ooh, he's got something good going there. Let's go steal his stuff, his idols, and his priest." And the priest says, oh, that's a good deal. I'll go with you guys. And the tribe of Dan buys the priest off to go be their personal priest. (laughs) Again, not as God intended. Things continue to devolve and to develop. And at one point in the story, the men of a city called Gibeah, of the tribe of Benjamin, behave like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in Genesis chapter 19, a traveler is coming through the town. No one will receive him and give him hospitality until finally somebody lets he and his wife Uh, into their home, and then the men surround the place and begin to bang on the door and say, bring him out to us, that we would know him. And they want to do violence to him. They want to uh, violate him um, in an immoral sort of way. And the people of Israel, by the end of the book of Judges, long story short, (laughs) have become just like the nations. And so it would make sense to them uh, why they'd want a king like the nations, because this is where they've come, so far falling away from God's standards, so far forgetting God's character. And so they think that this is the way to the good life of peace and prosperity that they desire. That the king that they want, a king like the nations, is going to be the best thing for them. Um, And they end up receiving a king like Saul, who is a king that appears to be great for all these things. It says he's tall and he's handsome. He wins battles, right? He's popular. But what happens with Saul? (laughs) As capable as he might be, as good-looking and as appealing as he might be, he disobeys God. And he doesn't take God's word seriously. He doesn't do God's thing God's way all the time. And he obeys partially. Sometimes here, sometimes there. 
But at the end of the day, he's holding out a standard and a you know, rightness in his own eyes that he's going to adhere to and care more about that than what God cares about. They receive a king like Saul in chapter 15. And now get this, though. Uh, or excuse me, chapter 9 and 10. Saul is rejected by God. This is, again, going through the, the whole summary of the story in chapter 15. The book of 1 Samuel is 31 chapters. <laughs> and Saul doesn't meet his end until the end. And so we have a king who has been unfaithful to God and rejected by God, hanging out and hanging in power for the other half of the book. God responds to his people who say, Lord, we know best. We know what we want. He says, oh, really? You think you do? Let me give you what you want. (laughs) And you can learn from and see if getting your own way and doing what is right in your own eyes is going to lead you uh, to a place where you'd like to be. Saul is God's response to a people to show them that, uh, you know, they need to be careful what they wish for, (laughs) that they uh, don't know what's best. Saul is a dramatic example of this, and he hangs around for the other half of the book. Even after King David, the king to come next, is anointed, he and Saul run parallel and coexist for the entirety of the second half of the book. And the oppression and the evil, right, and the veering away from God's standards of that first king, of that bad king, continues to threaten the people and to harm them and to plague them for the purpose of that they would learn that they don't know what's best and to make them long for a king who would deliver them, a king who was righteous and perfect and faithful and true. And so for us, um, the question becomes, what sort of Saul's are we tempted to invest our hopes in today? What lesser kings can draw our loyalty and our hope away from God, uh, leading to God having to, to teach us a lesson as individuals and as a church? And here's a couple here. You can probably think of some more as well. And though we're not going to take the book of 1 Samuel and um, approach it solely on the basics, uh, basis of what it could teach us politically, there certainly is a connection here, right? We can place our hopes as uh, believers in our country today in a political figure or a political party. Um, in the past year and in the election that just took place, we saw Christians dividing over and uh, you know, pursuing with vigor and with a lot of hope um, either Trump or Biden, thinking that these men would be the kind of men who would lead us to where we ought to be, make society the way it ought to, you know, has, needs to be, and would be deliverers for us. Notwithstanding either's lack of character and conforming to a Christian worldview and behaving um, in a manner that uh, is honorable and brings uh, not a reproach to Christ, but instead is loving and gentle and uh, you know, truthful, we can look to figures like Donald Trump or Joseph Biden and say, that's the guy. <laughs> Notwithstanding all the flaws or you know, the warts and all sort of thing, they will be the deliverer. And if we just have them where they need to be, this president, this governor, this elected official, things will go well for us. And we can invest so much hope um, in those scenarios that we can become frustrated and angered and even despair when those sorts of folks don't get into the places we think they ought to be. We can live um, in this world and forget that our first and foremost identity now that we are in God's kingdom is as citizens of heaven and not as those who are belonging to the kingdom of this world. And we can get burnt and learn a lesson from investing our hopes too much in what's happening politically and forget about the God who reigns over all things and over all kingdoms and over all times. Next, though, a little bit closer to home for us in the church. Maybe we can get caught off guard or caught up in investing too much hope Uh, or confidence 
um, or faith in celebrity pastors or popular evangelical figures. Um, and this world is a fallen world. Uh, sin does abound, and even those who are Christian figures and Christian leaders do sometimes fall short. And every year there's you know, new stories and there's new scandals and there's new things that come about, and that can become a stumbling block for us. We can think of, I'm sure, many popular musicians or popular bloggers or YouTube personalities, authors who have, in the past couple of years, posted their own deconversion story, right? Their faith deconstruction and talked about how they've walked away from the faith. And those sort of things can shake us if we put too much confidence in men and in personalities and not enough in the person of Christ. Finally here, and this might seem a little bit too mundane, but we can even make kings out of those who are very close to home. Not just political figures or celebrities, but even the people in our own lives. We can regard them like kings. We can serve them like kings. What others think of us, what we believe others can give to us, and what we can receive from them can come to dominate us, to rule over our hearts and minds as we fear men or as we look to um, those who are close to us, even our spouses, and we look to them for a validation, right? A, a righteous approval and acceptance that only God can give and forget his justifying word. We can look to um, others for that acceptance and that approval. We can look to others for respect, especially, again, our, our spouses, and we cannot receive it, and that can become crushing and frustrating. And their opinion of us and the way that they uh, regard us can be the dominating factor in our lives, which leads us not to more fully and freely express our identity as God's people, <laughs> but instead it leads us to trying to find identity um, on the basis of what other human beings can confer to us. We can fear others. We can look to them for respect, for validation, for security, and we can invest hopes in those who are close to us and think that things will be all right as long as they do this for me or as long as I get what I want from them. We can do this in friendships. We can do this in marriage. We can do this in all sorts of relationships. But we can allow other people to be kings who dominate our lives. And in all this, we see that we, like Israel, can choose Saul's. And like Israel, we can suffer similar consequences that come from placing loyalties in and placing our hopes in lesser kings. Because any lesser king and any lesser human they're a sinner just like us. <laughs> and so what, how confident should we be about investing our hope in another sinful person, in another unfaithful person? Can they bear the weight of our hope? Can they give us the full deliverance we'd be seeking? And the answer is no. Yet we go through life, and like Israel, we try it time and time again. Whether we think we know what's best or we think that this person knows what's best, and in the process, we forget God. And so this leads us to conclude, and this is really where uh, what we're getting at the heart of in 1 Samuel uh, begins, and this is where, where it's going to take us the rest of the time together. This leads us to conclude, if we're not a good king, <laughs> and we even pick wrong kings and others, that the king we want, oftentimes, is not the king we need. And again, this is the summary statement, not just of 1 Samuel, but a foundational concept for this series. And said another way, think about this. Left to ourselves, doing what is right in our own eyes, and living without reference to the true king, um, the king oftentimes 
that we want is not the king we need. Let me say that again. This is the whole series right here. The king we want is not the king we need. Israel's history, our sin and our hearts demonstrates this fact to us. Whether that king is ourselves or another person, like Israel, we can realize that we need a king, but we so often appoint the wrong one to rule over our hearts. We need a king, church, who always does God's thing, who always keeps his will, who always does according to what he is pleased by. We need a king who does God's thing and does it God's way. Not partially, like Saul, but fully. And in this way, 1 Samuel is a book that's designed to make our hearts want the king that we truly need. This book is meant to create a longing in our hearts for that good and true king. And that king, the king that we need, is the king who is. At the time in 1 Samuel when Israel requests a king, they reject the one who already was king. The king they really needed was the king who already was, was God himself, the one true king, who we'll see as we close here, is the king who was and is and for us is to come. This is the king that they were meant to see and to receive and to place their hopes in. This king, this God. And so 1 Samuel then is meant, as we spend the time in this book, this next nine or 10 months, to draw us closer toward this king, to draw us in truer and deeper affection and loyalty and commitment to this king as he's presented in these three ways. First, this God, this king, the king who is, is first presented in 1 Samuel as the king who was. And that is, God is the king who has always reigned. Put simply, God was king from the beginning. (laughs) If you create everything, you get to call the shots, (laughs) okay? And God created the heavens and the earth. He formed the people of Israel. He redeemed them from slavery. He said, here is my covenant. Here is the way you will go. Keep the law and be blessed. Break it and be cursed. God created this world. He created his redeemed people. And he has been all this time, even as Israel fell off and decayed, even as they would worship other gods and God would punish them in the book of Judges and he would raise up a deliverer and they'd do it again. He never stopped sustaining them. He never stopped being faithful to them. He always fought their battles. He always preserved them on the brink of collapse. God continued to reign over them. And up to the point in 1 Samuel when they had requested a king, God had never ceased to be the king. He had never ceased to rule them well with goodness and fairness and justice and faithfulness. And the people needed to see that then, and we need to see it now. We need to remember that God, he is the good king who always works all things according to the counsel of his will, who always works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose and who remains patient with us. Uh, as the Bible calls Israel and us, a stiff-necked and stubborn people. God in his kindness is patient, that we would time and time again be led toward repentance. God is the king who was, and we need to remember that, just as Israel did then. Secondly, God is the king who is. He reigns now. And in 1 Samuel, as the people request a king, they're confronted with the fact that they've rejected God, And they're led to repent. They're led to see the wrongness of what's in their own eyes on the basis of what's right and true about God. 
And in 1 Samuel, you can write this verse down, chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, um, or excuse me, chapter 7, verses 3 through 11, they repent toward God. They realize and they reckon with the fact that he is the king who is, and so they should serve no other uh, God or Lord. Um, and even after Saul is installed as king, um, in chapter 12, God says, okay, I'll give you the king uh, that you want, and we'll see how it goes. But just know, and in chapter 12, he says, this king is going to be judged according to my standards, according to my law. In other words, the king is not above the law. He is under God's law. The king uh, who is at that time in Israel is still subject to the king who really is, to God. And for us now, just as them then, we need to look to God now in our lives, just like they did in 1 Samuel, and see that we're being called to respond to this king with repentance, with realignment of heart, in any ways in which we are not serving him fully from the heart, in which we're not obeying him as he's called us to do so. We need to repent toward the king who is. And finally, 1 Samuel calls us to look toward the king who is to come, the king who will reign. So God has reigned. He was reigning. He will reign. And in 1 Samuel, we see this in two ways. First, as the book and the narrative develop, the reader, after encountering Saul, is meant to long for and look for the true king who, um, 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, um, is after God's own heart. And that king in the story is who? It's David, King David. We're meant to see Saul as the dramatic picture and portrayal of what we get when we get what we want <laughs> and then say, Lord, give me something better. Give me the true king. And that's David, partially. And this is the, the point for us here. David is a good king. He is a true king. He does desire to do God's thing, God's way. Yet, he still deceives. He, he murders. He commits adultery. He is unfaithful. Time and time again, he repents and he returns. Yet, he doesn't rule and reign perfectly. But what he does is point us to a true king a king who would come and a king who has come named Jesus. Jesus, the king who wasn't just a man after God's own heart, but was a man with God's own heart, who came to this world and who enacted a kingdom for all us rebel sinners who had rejected God's rule to come into on the basis of the life that he lived, that we were meant to live, doing God's will, God's way all the time. He lived it perfectly. He died the death that enemies of the king rightfully deserve upon the cross. And then he rose from the grave, defeating every enemy that would threaten us and threaten God's kingdom, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the devil. Christ came and he conquered and he invites us all on the basis of his finished work to enter God's kingdom, not as rebels who will be destroyed, but as uh, acceptable subjects who will be prized and treasured and welcomed on the basis of his death and resurrection. Christ is the king who came. And for us now, as we read the book of 1 Samuel, in between that first coming of Christ uh, and where we're at now, we live under Saul's, don't we? <laughs> a lot of the rulers and a lot of the, the, the kings that we might serve or encounter, they're more Saul-ish than, than David-like, more than they are Christ-like. But this book is an encouragement to us to not just look back to the king who came, but to look forward to that king who will come again. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who will one day come and fully and finally bring his perfect rule, which is now in heaven 
onto this earth and a newly restored and created earth in perfect righteousness, in perfect justice. He'll remove every trace of the enemy from our experience, church. Every tear, all suffering, all sin, all death, every trace of the enemy will be gone forever. This is our King Jesus. And this is the King that ultimately the book of 1 Samuel calls us to look toward. And so as we close this morning and we worship King Jesus, let's remember that the King that we need is so much better than the King we could ever want. So much better than the King we could ever be. And let's close this morning um, with a response of love for this King. Let's live for this King. And even now, let's pray to this King and sing to this King. And so would you join me in prayer as the worship team comes to lead us in one final song?